um, we're going to look at Hezekiah this morning. And his story is found actually in three different places. But here, we studied it in Isaiah 36 to 39. It's also found in 2 Chronicles and 2 2 Kings. And then Chronicles comes after Kings. But anyway, not that that matters. But it's found in those places as well. And I'm going to kind of reference some of those things and come back and talk about those. But I couldn't help, always as I study, I try to kind of get a big picture idea in my head and then I try to think of a way to to illustrate that for you or to show you something similar. Okay, my my hand is like hanging up on this. I'm moving my hands too much. Um, So I was brainstorming. My daughter just happened to be home for our spring break and I'm like, okay, let's see now who did the, okay, what do you think about the movie The Natural? And my daughter, 20 years old, in college looks at me, she goes, what's that? I'm like, what? I mean, like the movie with Robert Redford. She's looking at me like, who's that? And I'm just thinking, oh, I failed you somehow. Okay, it's okay that you don't remember the natural, but you don't know who Robert Redford is? Oh my gosh. So anyway, I couldn't help but um, think, and I want to set this up for you because I thought how much he reminded me of Hezekiah. In this film, he plays the role of a hot shot pitcher um, who has a natural, obviously the natural, a natural gift. Um, We know where those natural gifts come from, but he had this natural gift. uh, And as a matter of fact, right preceding the clip that you're going to see, he was on a train bound for Chicago, was going to pitch for the first time in a major league game, and he just happened to be in a car with the Whammer. Well, if you aren't a baseball fan, the Whammer in that day and age was Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth happened to be in the same car, and they have a 30-minute stop. And what unfolds is Babe is showing off his batting ability, and a a sports writer is there and sets up having his hotshot new pitcher that no one's ever heard of and don't know pitch to Babe Ruth. And he's like, oh yeah, no problem. Well, he strikes the guy out. And unbeknownst to them all, on this rail car along with these guys was a woman, a black widow, so to speak. And um, they arrive in Chicago, and not long at all before the, the big game, in which he's going to debut his skill, watch what happens. And ladies, just like that, the gift that he had been given was really essentially taken away. The next scene you see is 16 years later, and he's in some minor league uh, ballpark attempting to uh, continue with the gift that he'd been given. And I thought, wow, how much that reminds me of Hezekiah in this story. Um, In many ways, they're similar because you see, Hezekiah had also been given great gifts by God. Extraordinary, as a matter of fact. And he accomplished much in his lifetime for God. His story, again, is found here. It's found in 2 Kings 18 to 20. It's found in 2 Chronicles 29 to 32. He did As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us in all these places, he did what was right in the eyes of God. When you look at the kings of Judah, there were zero, zero godly kings in Israel. Judah bounced back and forth. Good, bad, good, bad. It's just a funny, you know, lineage that they had. But here he is in the middle of Judah, and he did the Bible tells us what was right in God's eyes. He's even, it says, compared to David, we know as a man after God's own heart. He was in the lineage of David. It's a pretty impressive pedigree, right? It is. 
Unfortunately, all these accolades could not, did not lead him to finish as well as he started. And so to me, I say, what, what's the message in that for me? And the message is, I, I got to remember that myself, he, Myself, you, if you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, then you need to know your enemy, Satan, prowls around like a lion seeking to devour you. That's the bottom line. And so what does that mean for you and I? That means we can never let down our spiritual guard. We can never go so cr- grow so comfortable as to believe, I got it. I got this. I got this thing all figured out. I'm I'm doing really, I'm right there. We can never, ever do that. We are going to have to fight to the finish or at least all the way to the grave in this sanctifying process. And so let's open our Bibles, if you haven't, to take a look at some real specific things and lessons we can learn from Hezekiah in chapters 36 to 39. We're going to learn really three things or look at three things specifically. We're going to, number one, look at Hezekiah's faith, and I'm going to talk about how his faith faith moved mountains. We're going to talk about his failure um, and look at that a little more specifically. And then we're going to look lastly at his finish. And what what does God's word tell us about that? So his faith, it did in fact move mountains of enemies, those that were without his walls, literal walls, and then those within the walls of his own body. And specifically in 37... 38, I'm going to talk, 36, 37, and 38, I'm going to talk about those two enemies. I'm going to leave, I'm going to set aside the one in 39, uh, because that really is his failure, and we're going to talk about that separately, but we're going to talk about 37, 36, 37, and 38, and he faces really two enemies in these areas. The first one is a very physical, real military enemy. It literally is what you, when you think of an enemy, it is a country that is coming against him. It is a physical enemy. Then he faces um, an, an enemy that you can't see or touch or put your hands on. And it's an illness that overcomes him to the point of death. So he's going to face two things. And how he responds in those things has some similar characteristics. I wish we had time to take both of those apart. But I don't in the time frame that I have. And so I'm going to really be good and stick to just one of those things. So what I want to do is just let, let's look at the lessons we can learn from him facing the military enemy alone. And know that in both of those, the military and the illness, he does, some again, some consistent things. What does he do? He, in responding to these crises, he turns to God and begs for him to ask. Those are the consistent things that he does. But specifically, let's look here at the military enemy. And I think the first thing that I learned from looking at 36 and 37 is when the enemy's on the outside, we've got to trust God who's on our inside. And, and he literally is. So what happens here? Well, um, Sennacherib, or however you want to pronounce his name, however it is, the, the uh, king of Assyria had come against not just Judah, but they'd, he'd already come against and won Israel. So the nation Israel, psh, gone, and gone to the Assyrians. He'd already accomplished that. Then he had continued to, and remember, Israel was north of Judah. So they had been divided into two, and Israel... Um, 
what used to be Israel singular now had become two countries. He had taken the north, which was the country Israel with zero godly kings. And now he's coming down from the north towards Jerusalem. And so he's already taken several of the of the towns that are in northern Judah at that time. And so clearly he was making a very concerted march and effort, and it was successful by all counts. Um, you would say he is, he is on his way and he's coming to take us as, as Jerusalem. So what does Hezekiah do? Well, you see, I kind of got the extra reading assignment. And so while we look at the passage right here, we don't see Hezekiah necessarily doing anything until um, his commanders are standing out the wall outside of the walls taunting. But again, Hezekiah knew they were coming. He knew after conquering Israel and as, as they began attacking the far northern um, cities, he knew they were on their way. So he made some preparations. What did he do? To find those, you've got to go to the story in the other passages. And I went to Second Chronicles. And what I learned in Second Chronicles 32 is these are the things he did. Number one, he repaired the walls of the city so that there were no, no breaks. Number two, he forged new weapons. This is a big enemy. They've taken everybody. They're like, they're just lawn mowing their way through my country, through the other country, my neighboring country, and now they're headed towards me. I got to have some new weapons. Three, he drafted new soldiers. He brought in, enlisted new men to fight for him. He then organized commanders over those people so that there would be order rather than chaos, and, and they could be commanded and instructed, and it would be very, um, it would be very methodical in, in how they would approach or defend themselves against the enemy. He motivated his people. He gave great speeches. He gave them hope. He was by all intents and, you know, he was a charismatic leader. And that was important to encourage the people to let them believe they could defend their city against them. And then he blocked the Gihon Springs. Okay. This is so great because I was just there. I just have to tell you this. I was in Israel, first time ever, and I just have to say, I'd never been before. If it is at all within your power while you are younger, on the younger side, again, some of us were almost 60 on our trip, but by golly, make it one of your bucket list items to go to Israel. It will forever change the way you read your Bible, the way you view your God, the way you understand the dynamics with the Palestinian and Israeli conflict. I, I just, I see everything so differently. But one of the things we did there, and I'd already heard about this from Alex and Todd, was we went through Hezekiah's tunnels. Okay, what? I mean, I really didn't get it. And then would you believe it? We're reading this. I'm teaching this. Like, are you kidding me? I'm climbing through these tunnels and this is what I'm teaching. This is unbelievable. What this man did is that there was a natural spring outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And um, they, it, they fed the city. What he realized is that the enemy can block that. And then we're cut off from water and the enemy has all they need. So what I need to do is figure out, and how in the world they figured this out, I don't know. Because like, they're not engineers, but I guess they were. So anyway, they figure out that the, what they've got to do is tunnel is divert that natural spring and they dig under the city of Jerusalem from two different ways. He had a group digging from the actual spring and a group digging from inside the wall through solid bedrock. Ladies, this is solid bedrock. You can see where they, I don't know even what, you know, whatever they, pickaxes or whatever they use, you can see the marks on the wall and you go to a certain point 
and the, and the marks are all headed this way. And then the guide will turn and say, okay, this is where they met. And it goes up even higher and you step across and you see they're coming the other direction that he had teams of people because the enemy was at their gate practically. And there was no time to be lost. This is what he did. And the water still runs under the city of Jerusalem to this day. It's incredible. And that's what our guide would say. He was the cutest little Israeli guy. And he would jump around and just say, this is, and and again, he's not a believer, but he is a believer in the verifiable truth of the Bible. And he would say, this is unbelievable, incredible. What happened? And you're just caught up in it too. And you're like, yeah, this is, it really is amazing. The preparations that were made all for this enemy on the outside. And so the stakes were high. Assyria threatened their destruction and they make it all the way to the city walls. What do they do? They begin taunting. They mock God. They compare him to a lifeless idol. They try to frighten the warriors on the wall. And of course, the the Judah, the commanders of Judah try to say, speak to us in Aramaic because they realize this is going to be scary. You're scaring my people. You're scaring my guys. And the, uh, no way. I mean, they just up it another notch. They're like, are you kidding? I'm going to make it even louder. I mean, I'm going to make sure I'm going to tempt them down from that wall to be, to join us. I'm going to make it so good sounding for them. And what happens? I thought it was so interesting that there is no response. And what does that remind you of? It was a A reminder to me of Jesus at his own trial, how he stood as he was taunted and mocked before Pilate. He gave no word of answer. And that's exactly what the king had told them to do. And that's what he did in 36, um, 20. So his commanders, Hezekiah's commanders run to the king to report what has happened. And what does he do? He does three things from Isaiah 37. Let's read it. When King Hezekiah heard it, he won. Put a number one. He rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. Two, went into the house of the Lord. And three, sent his guys who were over the household, the secretary and whatever, and the senior priest closed that line to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. Okay, so three things he did. He tears his clothing. Why? What is that? That's the Jewish symbolism. It's the symbol of grief or mourning. Now, what, what was his grief for? Was it for, oh my gosh, we're about to lose our lives. They're about to take us. They're going to overcome us. I think that was part of it. I mean, let's be real. They're, they're human. Yes, I do believe that was part of it. But the grief was because of what was happening outside the walls. It was an attack against who? God himself. I think he was mourning over my God is being mocked right outside my walls. Mockery. And he mourned for it. And then he headed to the temple. And why did he do that? Because that was the symbol. That was the place of God's presence. It's where God was. He knew where to find God. Do you? Do you know where to find God? That's the question. And then what does he do? He sends messengers to Isaiah. Now, who was Isaiah to the people? He was the spokesman. He was the one who spoke on God's behalf. He was the prophet who foretold, spoke for God. And so he goes to the one in whom he knows there is wisdom and who can speak for God. Wise counsel. He ran to seek it. And as I read this, I just thought, okay, all right, what about me? Do I grieve today when my God is mocked? Because let me tell you, it happens every day. It's happening on the radio when I turn it on. If I'm listening to NPR or, you know, um, KRL, I mean, just KRLD um, or some 
left wing. It happens in in movies that I see when God's name is taken in vain. It happens when just even good, well-intentioned people say, well, that's fine for you, but you know, God really doesn't have anything to do with it. I, just, I, don't, I don't really believe all that God stuff. God is mocked. And so like Hezekiah, I've got to remember as it's all going on outside the walls of me, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And that takes me to the second thing that he does. Hezekiah prays. And I think that's a lesson for us. Praise as if his life depends on it. It does. And then work as if it doesn't. It doesn't. That's the bottom line. But you see, it didn't keep Hezekiah from making preparations. Hezekiah did what he could do. But in the end, what did he know? All of what I do doesn't amount to a hill of beans. It doesn't matter. Because if God wants me to win, I'll win. If he doesn't, I won't, no matter what I have done. So quit your striving. Quit your strife. It doesn't mean you don't do your part. Absolutely do your part. Be found faithful. Work is a God-given thing and do your work well and with excellence. But in the end, at the end, no, it is not dependent on what you do. It is dependent on what God does. And that's a great lesson. So I love the order of the steps that happen here. It's interesting to note what happens. Because Isaiah, um, when he sent, remember, to, to Isaiah, what does Isaiah send back? Read with me in 37 again. So uh, drop down to 6. Um, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of these words that you have heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. And then he goes on. Okay, so number one, what um, Isaiah sends back to Hezekiah are words of hope and encouragement. Don't be afraid of all this. Okay, yeah, I, I see it. I know it. Thank you. I got it. I see it's going on. Don't be afraid. Doesn't bother me. Hope and assurance. But... He doesn't change the circumstances. The Assyrians are still standing outside the gates, still calling. They're not done. They ramp it up again. So in 37, it goes on. So what we heard before in 36, drop back to 36, because what they had said to Hezekiah, uh, or to the men on the walls, um, 18, 36, 18, beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Syria? Then 20, who among all the gods of all the countries have delivered their countries out of my hand that the Lord should de deliver Jerusalem? All right, then drop over to 37. It happens again. 37, 12, have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations of my father, blah, blah, blah. And he starts listing out all the cities they've just taken. Bum, 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 bum. I mean, it's coming. Dun, 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 dun. Do you feel it? If it was a movie, the, the, the uh, score would be very foreboding right now. I mean, he's just saying, I'm, it, nothing has changed in the circumstances. And yet God says, don't fear. Hezekiah does again what he knows how to do best. What does he do? He runs and spreads it out. The letter that has been given to him, he spreads it out on the floor, I'm thinking, it doesn't tell us this, prostrating himself in front of the Lord and begging God. And he, and he follows a little model here, and I love it. And I hope you got to talk about this in your lesson today. What does he do from 37, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20? He, it's a great model for us. He does this. Number one, in his prayer, he remembers who God is nine, in 16. We often call this adoration. It's, it's, it's calling God, claiming the, the character qualities of who God is. Um, we, there's a, another little acronym, ACTS. 
adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication that's taken from the Lord's Prayer. It's very similar here, not all of them, but similar. So number one, remember who God is, adore Him. Don't go to Him till you until you remind him who he is. He knows, but he wants to hear that you know who it is you're dealing with. Two, admit you need him. That's that confession point. Um, I, I am nothing without you. I got nothing. I've done all this and I got nothing. Admit your need of him. And then lastly, in 20, he gets to plead on your case. Ask God to act. It's beautiful. James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may, may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effect. I'm really glad today that I can depend on that. Because you see, last week I got a phone call and my sister, my sister's 57, she'll be 58 this year, um, was just diagnosed with the stage three melanoma on her leg. And it's a funny thing because my great friend Sherry's older sister, exact same thing. She sees a surgeon at three o'clock today to find out what the next step is and what the prognosis is. And uh, when I heard it, we were, again, I had a daughter home for spring break, but I drove. I drove to Tulsa, which is where she is. I just thought the best thing I can do is just go be with her and encourage her. I'm, I'm learning in here. Okay, what, what happened? Isaiah sent a word of encouragement. I can go give a word of encouragement. But you know what? I left with her encouraging me. Here's what she said, and I actually wrote it down. This is what she said. You know what? God has been so gracious in preparing me for this for weeks. I, I really, I didn't see it then. And she went through a number of things that she had journaled, things that people had said to her. She actually works in a hospital and people had said things about the recovery of, she works in a women's area and someone brought their daughter in who was having a baby and they're like, this is such a miracle because you know, she had melanoma when she was little and blah, blah, blah. And, and here she has been, she was never supposed to have kids. And, she, and my sister was like, okay, that was weird. That was like two months ago. God has been preparing me for this all along. I had no idea. I couldn't connect the dots. I didn't get it. I couldn't trace his hand. But I did know I could trust his heart. And I left there encouraged. And she said, so what do I know? I know now I can trust him to help me glorify him whether I live or whether I die. So I don't know about you, um, but I'm doubling down my prayer effort for my sister, for my for Becky, my friend Sherry's sister. And what I know is, again, James 5, 16, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. They count for much. So who do you know today? A neighbor, a coworker, a family member, a friend who needs this very simple prayer reminder, model of prayer. Call them today and help them turn their helplessness or their hopelessness into a prayer where they can cast all their cares on God because they know he cares for them. And then let's look at Hezekiah's failure. So we see his faith. It was great in these two cases. And what about his failure? What happened there? Well, it came on the heels of a big old winning streak. Because again, he had done so well, done so well, done so well. Let's recount. He was God's man. He'd done incredible things again for God. Um, he had been different than his daddy. His daddy was Ahaz, a very evil king. He came to the throne focused, rather than on the things that he had learned at his dad's feet, focused on worshiping and obeying the Lord. He had to unnail, 
His daddy had nailed the temple shut. Hezekiah had to unnail the temple and reinstitute worship. It wasn't even going on. He headed one of the greatest revivals in Judah. So he did great things. He cleansed it. He, he rededicated it. He ushered in this time of revival. This is what 2 Chronicles 31, 20 through 21, slow down, Lucina, says. It says... I realize you can't even understand me because I'm talking so fast. So let me slow down. Hezekiah did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every, not a few, not some, and every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and he prospered. Oh, but then there's chapter 39. (laughs) And what happened? Yet when the Babylonians come to his house and they say, we heard you were so sick and here's a gift and we, you're well and we're happy. And, and instead of going, isn't God great? He gave me my life back because that's what God did. Look, let's go back. What are the things that God did? Um, God had delivered him from the hand of the Assyrians. Remember, he had done all those things, forged new weapons, hired new soldiers, blah, 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 blah. But what happened? That night, when you go back to to 37, what happened is God sent an angel and slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers without an arrow being fired. That's what God did. Okay, so God did that. Then when he's sick and crying, um, what does God do? But turns around and says, okay, okay, I'll give you 15 more years. I mean, pretty big things. And you would think he'd be darn grateful and be like, God is so good. God is so great. But somehow at this moment, he thought, He was good and great. And so he just had to say, la, 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 I've prospered. I've done so well. Look at all that I've done. And then he shows off. It's just like a little kid, a show and tell. Remember those days when your kids were like so proud to take whatever had happened or whatever they'd done or their trophy they'd won or this or that or my glove or the thing that so-and-so signed? It's the same thing. It's just, wow, look what I did. I'm so good. That's what it is. So past obedience, it is doesn't remove the possibility of present disobedience. And then we're so quick to forget all that God's done because these are all the things that he done. So we must remember what God has done. I don't know how you do it. Journal it, tell it, talk about it to your kids who just roll their eyes like, yeah, I've heard this story before. You know, we'll do- tell it again. I mean, just say, I know, I know you have, I'm gonna say it again. It's so good, isn't it? It's really good. I'm gonna tell it to you again. And you just gotta plunge on through those because we forget We're quick to forget, and we've got to remind ourselves. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, and then when you're down, hope that they retell it to you. And tell me when I've forgotten and I'm old and I can't remember anymore. I need you to do it. Why? Because we're commanded to. Do you know that go all the way back to Moses, and God was very clear in Deuteronomy about remembering what God has done. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 8. Take heed lest you forget what the Lord your God, by not keeping his commands and his ordinances and statutes, which I command to you this day, lest when you've eaten and are full, Ah, do you hear prosperity already? And when you've built goodly houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, ah, prosperity, and when your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, pride, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who led you, who fed you, et cetera, et cetera. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power And the might of my hand have gotten this for me. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them, I solemnly warn you 
What does he say? That you shall surely perish. If not literally, physically in the moment, then in every other way. Gone. Vapor. Vaporized. Gone. And so again, we just need to remember that the better things are going, the more vigilant we've got to be in our walk. It's so easy to get comfortable, to begin thinking, yeah, I got a routine going here. My quiet times are good. My memory's good. I, yeah, I'm not, I memorized the Sermon on the Mount. I got that, or I did this, or I did that. I mean, Hezekiah had been good. He was so good that he began to believe his own press and buy into it and think, yeah, I've done it. I'm good. That's what we've got to be aware of. There's a great book out um, by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. And listen to what he has to say about pride, because that was really Hezekiah's sin here. First Samuel, uh, okay, so he says in the chapter on pride, First Samuel 2, 7 teaches, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. There are two students in the same major, major and both work diligently, yet one excels and gets top grades, while the other barely gets above average. Why the difference? Because God has given one more intellectual ability than the other, or perhaps he brought him into a world and a family that challenged and stimulated his intellectual growth. Whatever the cause, the ability to achieve or succeed in any endeavor ultimately comes from God. Wow. In any endeavor. And now I'm going to really admit something ugly to you because the really sick thing about this is sometimes I can get proud about teaching. Like I work and work on things sometimes and I can think, that's really good. That sounds so good when I say that like that. I really like that. That is such a good illustration. Oh, they're going to, and you know what? I'll be darned if God isn't so gracious to the times when I think I like might have an illustration that you guys relate to. I'm thinking you're going to giggle or you're going to like, yeah, that's great. And you deadpan. There's nothing. I'm like, what was that? That was such a good illustration. And nothing. And you know what? That's graciousness on God's part because this is not about me. This is about him and his words. And I don't have to pull out a bunch of junk out of a hat for you. That's not what it's about. It's about presenting God's word as best as possible. But, but nothing that I do, because who gave me the idea for that anyway? Not me. Certainly not my daughter, who doesn't even know what the natural is. So, and let's talk about our daughter. Kyle said, you know what? Share my story. I mean, just, again, how little pride can seep in in good things. We've got a daughter who never dated until her freshman year in college and then very purposefully has continued for the last three years to date a guy. And from the get-go, Kyle has met with him repeatedly. I mean, ad nauseum, they would say, um, and actually did say at Christmas. So, you know, just continuing to drive him to the next level. And if you're, you know, gave him the book, The Man You Need to Be If You Want to Marry My Daughter, okay, got that. That was like three years ago. And then continues, how are you doing physically? How this, how that? How's your spiritual walk? What are you learning? I mean, okay, at Christmas, we go on a vacation. Um, He says to Audrey, I mean, Boom, the first, we hadn't even gotten on the plane yet. We're like in the airport and we sit down to have a little something together. And the four of us, the two kids, and he says to Audrey, being purposeful, launches into something about she and her boyfriend. And she, like, it just, it was like, this is it. And she reacted. And she came back across the table at her dad. 
not in a bad way, but just, again, being honest. It's just, Dad, I got to tell you, I just feel like you are controlling everything. I mean, what's the deal? What do we have to do? Where is the bar? I mean, is it our decision or is it your decision? Because he's like, he was saying, well, I'm just not really sure if you guys go through the, because they're saying they're going to go through the premarital class this summer. And he's like, well, I'm just not really sure if, you know, if he comes to me and says that he's ready to get married. And she's like, what do we have to do? I, I mean, I don't even, I can't even figure this out, Dad. And it was a long list of things, and he suddenly, I mean, he did not handle it well, I got to say. And he would say the same thing. <laughs> and you know what? He went to the, we, by the time we got to our room that night, he said, well, just see if I help him anymore. I'm not going to help him. I'm not going to meet with him anymore at all. I don't even care. I don't care what happened. I'm a, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it was a couple of days of unfolding that because he had been hurt. And then he, he's able now to look back and say, you know what? Wow. I was so proud of how I was doing. I'm really shepherding my daughter and that boy really, really well. I am doing, I'm checking all the boxes. I got, and I'd forgotten to love them. My daughter didn't feel loved by me anymore. She felt controlled. Wow. What a challenge it is for you and me to really say, where, where is it? Um, where have I grown comfortable in my walk? Am I feeling so good about how I'm doing spiritually that I am missing the mark and missing the, the sin that's right ever present in front of me, pride? It might be time, if that's you, to just do a little adjustment and go to God in repentance and humility and call it what it is, sin. And that takes us to the finish because, you see, I love that, that Hezekiah's finish didn't define him, and that should give hope to us all. And I would take you to 2 Kings and just say, he's not, Hezekiah doesn't appear in the hall of faith found in Hebrews 11. But you know what? There are some pretty other ugly, rough characters that do. I mean, look at Abraham. Goodness. He tried to pass his wife off more than once as his sister and got him really into deep trouble. Then he slept with her handmaid and had a kid that is the father of all the Arab nations. I mean, that's problems to this day. And then there's Samson, who was trouble all his life, chasing after women. And yet, Blah, 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 blah. And there's Rahab and there's, okay. And yet they're there. And yet we see his story, not in one chapter, not in two chapters, but we see Hezekiah's story, not in the hall of faith, but we read it here. We read it in Chronicles. We read it in Kings. And we read lots of great things. God doesn't discount them. He tells the truth about them. So he tells the good, the bad, the ugly but he doesn't remember us for what we are. And I love the illustration that JP gave. Um, if you don't go to Watermark, I'm sorry. I'm going to go through it quickly. But um, this past couple of weeks, JP has taught, and he's taught on, um, on who we are in Christ. And he says, this is us. And do you know, um, it was very literal for me. He said, when you become a believer, then Christ comes to live in you. So here's Christ. Here's me. Once I make that step of faith and say, I ask, I recognize I'm a sinner and I need a savior, then Christ comes to dwell in me and he literally lives inside of me. He takes over my heart and he makes me a new creation. But then, that's not the end. He went on to say, and then you know what happens. Then Christ lives in you, but then you are ultimately in Christ. And so when you go to God, he doesn't see you for the ugliness of who you are. He sees you through the lens of Christ. You are found in Christ Jesus. Christ is in you, but you're in Christ. And he covers you. That's a beautiful picture 
So you can read the great things that Hezekiah did, but isn't it encouraging to know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? If you're not, I encourage you ladies today, if you're not resting in Christ, get there quickly. You I'm sure have blown it somewhere in your life. I could bore you with the stories of the ways I've blown it big and little and on a daily basis just about. And yet God doesn't see me like that. He sees me as his daughter, the one he loves. So no excuses today, ladies. I just think it's kind of, you got to just wrap it all up like my good friend and great childhood cartoon favorite character, Popeye. He used to sing this song, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. I'm strong to the finish because I eat my spinach. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Well, I changed it. This is what I say. I'm Lucina, God's own girl. I'm Lucina, God's own girl. I'll fight to the finish because I know that he wins it. I'm Lucina, God's own girl. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is seated at your right hand. Let us glorify you in all we do. In your name, amen.